Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. I just want to say thanks very much for all the iTunes reviews. They've been very helpful, and please keep them coming. As always, you can find us on Twitter at @elucidationspod, and you can check out our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. One other thing I wanted to mention is that since August, we've been doing our hosting through a new startup called Pippa, which is pretty cool. It's actually founded by some former philosophers. And I have to say, I've been very impressed so far. The service is totally free, provides detailed analytics, makes it very easy for you to migrate from your previous host to them. So all in all, it's been a very positive experience, and it's enabled us to get much more detailed stats on who's listening and when. So if you have a podcast and you're looking for a hosting service, you might check them out. They can be found at pippa.io, P-I-P-P-A dot I-O. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from South Bend, Indiana. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Megan Sullivan, the Reverend John O'Brien Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, and she is here to discuss time biases. Megan Sullivan, welcome. Thanks, Matt. So time biases, that's a new term. I don't think I've heard that before. What exactly is time bias, and what would be some examples of it? So you have a time bias if you have a preference about when good or bad experiences happen. So probably the most common example and the one that philosophers, psychologists, and economists are really obsessed with is near bias. So a person is near biased if she prefers uh, some experiences over others because they happen sooner rather than further away. So you might think near bias is a good explanation for why people don't save money for retirement. Suppose you get a $1,000 tax return from the IRS and you have a choice between blowing it on a cool vacation in Mexico or putting it in a retirement account where you're not going to be able to withdraw the money for 30 years. You might reason as follows. If we put the money away, it's going to grow in value. You know, it might double every seven years if the stock market keeps going the way it's going. So it would be worth a lot more money when you withdraw it, way more than you'd be willing to spend on a Mexican vacation now. But that's so far away, temporally, that you just don't care that much about it, and you'd prefer to have the really good experience now. That's a really common kind of near bias that we're all susceptible of. Another more interesting kind of time bias, and and this is um, one that I focused on a bit in my work, is we tend to care a lot less about both good and bad experiences if they've already happened. So this is future bias, or sometimes it's called past discounting. And a really good example of this is, imagine you had to have a pretty painful surgery. Uh, Now you've already recovered from it. You might think you just don't care at all about that surgery anymore, especially if you don't have bad present memories of it. Whereas if you were gonna have a surgery a month or a year from now, you would have really strong preferences about it. You'd prefer that it be shorter or less painful if that were possible. It'd be the kind of thing that emotionally you'd be really attending to. Future bias is our tendency to prefer any good experience in the future over any good experience in the past or 
any bad experience in the past to any potential bad experience in the future, if that makes sense. Another two other kinds of time bias that might be of interest to listeners is some people have strong preferences about when events happen in their lives. So David Velleman raises this interesting case of suppose you have a choice from like the original position of two potential lives. Both of them are guaranteed the same total amount of happiness in those lives. But one is one is a life where each year gets happier than the previous year. And so it ends on a high note. And another is a life where uh, it starts off really high, but each year gets progressively worse and it ends on a low note. If all you care about is like having the happiest life possible, you should flip a coin. Like it shouldn't matter between the two lives. But a lot of people, they hear that thought experiment, they think like, no, I would really prefer a life that ends on a high note. So I have a strong time bias in the sense that I care about the sequence of things that are going to happen in my life. I care about ending on a high note. Maybe that means that my life is a life of like success rather than a life of tragedy, or you have some like narrative story that you put on those lives. But something like that has, you know, that's a time bias in the sense that your preferences about the lives are sensitive, not just to the features of the values of those lives, but how those values are distributed in time. Yeah, that's a really fascinating example. I mean, I certainly have that intuition as well, that I would prefer the, you know, the upward incline, as it were, of happiness over my life. I wonder whether that has to do with like, anticipation of the future playing more of a role in my present emotional state than like memory of the past. Yeah. I think with development cases, it's very hard to put ourselves in the position of somebody that's choosing between these two lives and trying to figure out how much we would value them. Suppose you think that rational agents care about ending on a high note, or they care about like their lives as a whole fitting together into a certain coherent narrative. You might find yourself in a weird situation when you try to operationalize that or when you try to make it a principle of rational planning, especially because it's going to conflict with other seemingly plausible principles of rational planning. So here's an example. Let's suppose that uh, Frank is approaching retirement. He's spent most of his career up until now working on a book, and he knows that if he threw himself into the project, he could finish it. But right now, he gets little pleasure from the project. He just doesn't care that much about working on the book. And he thinks, in fact, he'd be happier if he just totally abandoned it and he spent the rest of his golden years like playing with his grandchildren or going on vacation with his family. You can suppose that a life where Frank finishes the book is going to have more narrative value. It's going to stick together or like make his life a more coherent story or end on a high note, the note of like successfully completing his project, rather than one where he spends the rest of his life playing children's games and like visiting his relatives. So you might think like if you care about your life fitting into this coherent narrative, then Frank has good reason to continue finishing the book. But another principle of rational planning says that rational agents should want their lives going forward to be as happy as possible for them. And if that's the principle that Frank's following, he should abandon the book. Uh, he knows he won't be very happy if he continues to spend his remaining time trying to finish it. So which principle should he follow? He can't both finish the book and abandon the book. We have to figure out which trumps which, the narrative considerations or what I call like the success considerations. The success meaning like rational agents' lives get happier or happier when they experience them. I think if you take these kind of Velleman intuitions really seriously, you're going to have a hard time answering puzzles like that or saying like which principle you really should follow. And, you know, there are iterations of these cases that make it even more complicated. So for those reasons, I think, while we might have that intuition in like the really 
abstractly described Velleman case. When we get into the details, it's not at all clear that it's rational for us to care about the sequencing. There's one last kind of time bias that's relevant to uh, this debate that Samuel Scheffler has really gotten going. So he has this book called Death in the Afterlife, which is like the most misleading title for a philosophy book ever, because very little of it's about death. And none of it's about the what we commonly mean by the afterlife. What Scheffler means by the afterlife is our assumption that there's going to be human civilization after our lives. Doesn't mean like any kind of spiritual afterlife where you like are on a cloud with Socrates for eternity. But Scheffler's project also raises a new and kind of weird form of time bias about meaning. The whole book is predicated on this thought experiment. What if you found out that pretty soon after your death, the world was going to end in like a doomsday-like event? Scheffler argues that in those situations, you would, be, you would have a very hard time finding any meaning in your current activities, like writing philosophy or spending time with your family. They just wouldn't feel as valuable to you in, the, in that way anymore. You might still get a little bit of immediate pleasure out of it, but you'd be missing a really important sense of value for meaning because there wouldn't be future generations to inherit your projects or to participate in similar kinds of projects. An interesting thing about Scheffler's book is he argues the connections that we need to have with other people for our projects to be meaningful, those people have to be in nearby generations and in future generations. It can't be connections with people in the past or the distant future that give us meaning, which is a kind of time bias. It's a time bias about meaningfulness, but basically you have your preferences are sensitive to what's going to happen in the nearby future after your death, but not sensitive to what's going to happen in the really distant future or in, or before you were born. So that's a like fourth kind of time bias. There's not really a catchy name for it the same way there is for like near bias and future bias and structural bias, but we might call it like meaningfulness bias. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that does seem kind of intuitive. It does seem like a little harder to wrap my mind around responsibility to people 10,000 years from now than it does to wrap my mind around the idea of being responsible to like my grandchildren or something. Oh yeah. I mean, it doesn't like, you know, you find out doomsday is going to happen. That makes it very hard for you to find meaning in your work as a philosopher. But then some like smart ass comes to you and says, well, look, I mean, you know, this all isn't going to go on forever. Eventually like 4 billion years, there's going to be heat death of the Milky Way galaxy or the universe is going to eventually end. Does that mean that your none of your projects are meaningful? Most of us think like, no, that's not like, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about sometimes, but that doesn't really pose any deep meaning threat to my life. Now, it's funny, like, we, like Scheffler kind of makes fun of people that think that way in his book, but actually some really serious thinkers throughout history have thought that the fact that this isn't going to go on forever is something that causes a crisis of meaning. So it's like Tolstoy in his, uh, his autobiography talks about finding himself at age 50 at this kind of existential precipice because he realized even though he was a world-renowned author and wealthy, had like eight children, like a wonderful family, eventually everything that he was trying to do on earth would be totally forgotten. And once he realized that, he reports like he just couldn't find any value in any of his activities anymore. And in fact, this is when he like became a monk and like started giving away his possessions and had major friction with his family. So some people do like take the long view of how their lives are meaningful and don't have this kind of near bias about meaning. But the fact that they don't have this time bias, like for Tolstoy, had really devastating consequences. It meant that there was lots of ways he just couldn't find value in his life anymore. 
Yeah, so we looked at some examples of time biases that kind of interfere with our ability to make the right decisions. For example, not saving up money for retirement seems like a bad decision. Um, but then we also had this example of, yeah, maybe in certain cases, a bias towards the immediate impact my life might have on other people can help me get through the day and you know not become a monk and so forth. So what do you think about time biases? Do you think they're helpful or do you think they're harmful? Or is it sort of depending on the case? So philosophers, psychologists, economists have focused a lot of attention on near bias. Only really philosophers have been interested in our tendency to discount the past. There are a couple psychologists who've actually tried to measure how much we don't care about experiences in our past, but there's actually very little research on like the psychology behind how we value past events. I think all of these time biases should be treated as a family. And if you're using one theory of rationality to argue that people should be saving money for retirement, that near bias is irrational, then you should look and consider whether that same theory of rationality says that you should care just as much about your past as you care about your future, or you should take the long view of how you fit in human history rather than the near biased view. So one of my big projects, I'm just finishing this book on time biases, one of my big projects is showing how these different attitudes about time are a lot more similar than we might have supposed, especially when you dig into the arguments about why it's irrational to be near biased. Those same arguments can apply for many other different kinds of time biases. And also to try to convince you that being temporally neutral, not having preferences that are sensitive to when things happen, can actually help you lead a better life. And people have long thought this about near bias. So in the last like two years, there have been no fewer than a dozen popular psychology books that have come out trying to help people exercise more self-control and be less near bias. So you have like Walter Mischel, the marshmallow test guy. Uh, he wrote a book explaining like, how do you teach your children to wait for the second marshmallow? How do you teach adults to like, you know, adequately envision their future so that they'll save their money? Roy Baumeister, who does work on executive function and how we like, you know, ways we can nudge ourselves into planning for the more distant future. Like Angela Duckworth just came out with this book about grit. So how like you can develop personal perseverance to excel at jobs that we'd normally thought took a lot of innate talent. There's all this work trying to get us to think more about our future and to care more about our the time horizons in our distant future. But a lot of those same ideas, if we take them really seriously, I think could make us care more about our past. Okay, so a lot of this stuff we've been hearing in the news media about how a very important skill we should teach our children is to delay their gratification and you know not to prefer short-term immediate rewards over long-term bigger rewards and so on and so forth. And maybe that's a result of what we're calling near bias. Maybe that's a result of somebody preferring some outcome just because it's closer to right now. And maybe that's like a reasoning fallacy of some kind. But what if that's not actually a result of time bias? Maybe I prefer to have one marshmallow now versus waiting 10 minutes because I just don't know what's going to happen in 10 minutes. Anything could happen. Maybe we'll run out of marshmallows in 10 minutes. Does that feeling inside me that makes me want to resist planning for the future, is that really a result of like me preferring the present over the future? Or is that a result of me just being more confident about what's happening right now versus what's going to happen later? This is a great question. So something that's really important in this debate is we have to distinguish people who discount uh, future events because they're in the future 
from people who discount those same events because they think they're really risky or improbable. And as a matter of fact, as something gets scheduled further and further in the future, it does get less and less. Your confidence that it's going to occur should get like lower and lower because the future is open or risky. And that gets us into some tricky metaphysical questions. But in general, it's a good assumption that you should assign lower probability, subjective probability to events that get scheduled further in the future. And it's totally rational, at least on most mainstream conceptions of rationality, to discount an event based on the likelihood that it happens. So if you're an American thinking about putting money into your retirement account and you're healthy, you should be more confident that it's going to grow in value than if you're a Greek who's thinking about putting money in the bond market in Greece right now. Why is that? Well, it's just a lot more volatile bond market in Greece right now. So it's a lot less likely. You should be a lot less confident that when you go to make that withdrawal, there's going to be the same amount of money there. That's totally rational. You might think, okay, why don't people save money for retirement? Why won't these kids wait for the second marshmallow? Maybe it's not that they're being irrationally near biased, but maybe they just assign a low probability to that event happening, like the event of them surviving and that money growing in their retirement account, or the event of the experimenter coming back in the room if you're one of Michel's marshmallow kids and actually giving you the second marshmallow. Maybe you've been burned by adults before. If what we're doing when we're not saving money for retirement or waiting for the second marshmallow is just risk discounting, then these puzzles are a lot less interesting because you're, you're just doing, you know, all we have to do is then criticize whether or not you have the right probabilities. I think when we start to think as philosophers about near bias, uh, we need some mental tricks for helping us decide whether or not our attitudes are attitudes about time, about when things scheduled in the future, versus risk. One thought experiment you might do to try to separate the two is something that I call a reverse lottery thought experiment. So let's suppose, Matt, you're deciding about whether or not you're going to take up smoking. Do you, are you a smoker? No. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> so you're deciding whether or not you're going to take up smoking. And you know if you take up smoking, you got an 8% chance of developing lung cancer at some point in your life, probably in the really distant future. And you say like, eh, you know, I'll play those odds. I really want to be a smoker. Before you light up the first cigarette, perform the following thought experiment to make sure you're really comfortable with the odds. Imagine that tomorrow I was going to enter you into a lottery. You've got a 92% chance of winning the lottery and an 8% chance of losing it. If you win the lottery, you get to live out the rest of your life as a smoker without any likelihood of developing lung cancer. If you lose the lottery, you're going to immediately develop lung cancer, have to go through the really onerous treatments, have your family go through the really difficult process of watching you endure these treatments, Let's suppose we'll just take death off the table. You'll just have to go through all of the really horrific treatments that accompany lung cancer, and then eventually you'll get better and you'll be able to live out the rest of your life normally. Would you be willing to enter that lottery right now? If the answer is yes, then you are really comfortable with the odds. It's the probabilities that are deciding what your preference is. But if you're not, if we keep the probabilities the same, but we move the event closer in time and your preferences change, then you're being time biased. And I think in a lot of these cases, like, you know, forget about the lung cancer example for the retirement example, I say like, imagine getting that money that you saved, you know, imagine you put a thousand dollars in and it's guaranteed to be worth $5,000 in 25 years, 30 years. Imagine getting that money tomorrow. 
would you be willing to make the same trade off of like, you know, cool vacation to Mexico versus $5,000 in cold, hard cash if the option were presented to you tomorrow? If the answer is no, then it's the fact that you're not going to get that money for a long way and not the probability of getting the money that's going to matter to you. So I think like performing this reverse lottery thought experiment is one way we can tell whether or not it's the time variable that's wiggling our preferences or whether or not it's our comfort with the risk or our subjective probabilities of risk that's doing the, the shaping our preferences. So another example we talked about earlier was, let's say I had a choice between being in the state of having just had a really painful surgery versus being in the state of being like about to have a really painful surgery. Well, I think I'm, I'd probably prefer the former state. I think I'd probably prefer to have it over and done with. So you, you refer to this as a kind of past bias. There are certain things, maybe like painful things, that we would prefer to be over and done with rather than uh, have coming up. And then you also mentioned that this kind of bias arises for the same reason as near bias. So what's the common explanation for those two? Yeah, so let's talk about future bias for just a second. So you have a future bias if you discount events because they already happened. Uh, What do we mean by discount? I mean just like you value them less. So we say like somebody discounts their really distant future. They say like, well, if it's this far away, I care less about it. Somebody discounts the past if they think because it's already happened, I care less about it. There are ways of testing this. You might say like, do I do this? Well, Derek Parfit in Reasons and Persons gives this now pretty famous thought experiment to try to convince you that you do really do this. Here's my version of the thought experiment. Let's suppose that you've been in an accident and you wake up in the hospital and you have amnesia. And the nurse comes in and she says, you know, you've been in an accident, you have amnesia, you're going to need to undergo a surgery. You're going to make a full recovery eventually, but the surgery is pretty painful. You have to be awake during it, so it's a certain kind of brain surgery. Um, You think like, oh, the surgery sounds awful. She's like, wait a second. Actually, another patient in this hospital has a similar condition. He already had the surgery. It happened a few days ago. It was the longest on record, 10 hours of surgery. It was very painful, but now it's over, and that patient's on the road to recovery. You might be that patient. Or you might be the patient that's scheduled to have the surgery in a couple days, in which case we're sure it's just going to be a normal surgery. It's not going to be nearly as long. She's like, I'm going to go check. She's walking to the nurse's station to check if you're the patient that already had the surgery. The amnesia is really important here because, you know, not only can you not remember which situation that you're in, but you're not having any like present traumatic memories of the surgery, which could color your preferences. While she's going to the nurse's station, what do you hope the answer is going to be? Like, what do you prefer? Which world do you prefer to be in? Parfit says, obviously, you prefer to be the patient that already had the surgery and not the patient that would have it coming up. Even if you were the patient that were having it coming up, it would be shorter. That's some evidence that you discount the past. Because you think a 10-hour surgery, if it already happened is preferable to a five-hour surgery that's scheduled in the future. It's the same kind of trade-off. Now, something that's weird about future bias, about discounting the past, is if you have near-biased preferences, you can act on those. Like, you can make bad decisions or good decisions based on those preferences. You can decide to spend that money or put it into your retirement account or start smoking or refrain from smoking. But if you're that patient in the Parfit case, there's nothing that, like, you can do to change whether or not you already had surgery there's no like bad decision seemingly you could make as a result of wishing that your surgery had already happened. So for this reason, I think a lot of philosophers have thought or just assumed you can have whatever preferences you want about the past. Like 
Rationality is a matter of performing actions that make your life go well. If there's no action that you could ever take about the past, then you can have whatever wish or desire or preference you want about the past. The way I think uh, Lady Macbeth puts it is uh, that which is past redress is now for me past care. If you can't do anything about something, don't care about it. You know, care in whatever way you want about it. So for this reason, a lot of philosophers have said, like, we have that intuition in the perfect case. You can want all the bad things in your life to already be in your past if you don't have any present memories of it or if it can't affect your life at all going forward. A big part of my project is, like, let's look in some detail at the arguments for why it's irrational to be near-biased. And we actually find that there are parallel arguments that say you shouldn't have these past discounting preferences either. What are those near-biased arguments? Well, the two big arguments historically about why it's irrational to be near-biased are that near-biased agents are being arbitrary and that near-biased agents are messing up their lives going forward. They're making decisions that make their lives going forward worse. These should be maybe pretty obvious, but just bring it home. Near-biased agents are arbitrary because like, if you think you're going to survive to age 65, if you're pretty confident you're going to live that long, that person who has access to your retirement account is just as much you as you are now. This gets us into some tricky issues with personal identity, but at least on a lot of views of personal identity, it's you that would get that money. So there's something really arbitrary about saying just like just because it's going to happen at this certain date is a reason to care less about it. On the makes your life go worse point, you might think like prudential rationality is a matter of doing well in life, like following the kinds of principles that mean your life going forward goes well. And agents who aren't willing to make farsighted trade-offs have lives that go worse. This comes back to like Aesop's fable, if you ever heard this as a kid. So like the ants always save up for the winter. The grasshopper like plays all summer and doesn't save up anything for the winter. And then the grasshopper is like starving when the winter comes. And the ants are like, well, sorry, you should have been saving up your grains. Lives go worse if you're not willing to save up your grains. You say like, all right, let's go to the case of discounting the past Is it arbitrary to care less about things that have already happened to you than events that will happen? In some views, this gets us into complicated issues with the nature of time and whether or not there's a really important distinction between the past and the future. But at least some philosophers throughout history have thought, yeah, that is pretty arbitrary. So you see like Lucretius giving his famous argument about why you shouldn't be afraid of death. And the argument goes like this. You know, some people think that they're afraid of death because there's going to be this huge experiential blank after they die. The world is going to keep going forward and they're not going to be a part of the story anymore. They're not going to be able to do fun activities with their relatives. They're not going to be any part of world history. This is kind of like the fear of missing out version of the fear of death, like the FOMO version of the fear of death. (laughs) Lucretia says like, okay, if that's why you fear death, well, think there was this huge expanse of human history before you were even born, where you weren't a part of things. You weren't a part of the story. You weren't having good experiences. You weren't interacting with members of your family. Do you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold existential terror when you think about that? No, that's not something many of us are afraid of. It's not something that invokes really strong emotions in us. It's not something we have strong preferences about. In fact, I think a lot of us feel like, man, if I'd been born, like the idea of preferring to have been born earlier kind of creeps me out. Like the idea of me being alive in the 70s kind of creeps me out. It's definitely not something I want. Lucretius says, look, the past that you missed out on is exactly similar in every normative respect you could care about 
as the future that you missed out on. So if you're going to be rational, you have to have the same preferences about both. You can't arbitrarily care more about the future that you're missing out on than the past. That's a kind of arbitrariness argument against past discounting. Another argument, and this is one my friend Preston Green and I wrote up in a paper in Ethics that came out last summer, a lot of people assume that discounting past experiences could never lead you to make bad trade-offs in the future. But that's a, a bad assumption. That assumption doesn't hold up because there are lots of cases where if you're tempted to discount the past and you're using other rational planning strategies, the combination of your strategies are going to mean that you make some bad trade-offs. So in our paper against time bias, we came up with two examples of this. Tom Doherty, who's at Cambridge, also came up with a really interesting argument of people who discount the past and as a result make some trade-offs that mean they end up doing less well than if they hadn't done it. So I think that we can find these parallel arguments, and if you take these as good reasons to not be near-biased, then they really push you to just be completely temporally neutral. I see. So I guess one reason that people haven't focused as much on future bias is because uh, there's been an assumption that being future impartial won't affect your actual behavior, whereas being near impartial, that is to say avoiding near bias, actually will affect your behavior. But what you and Tom Doherty and Preston Green are trying to argue is that actually being future impartial can significantly affect your behavior. Yeah. So let me give you actually a really concrete example. And this is something that there has been some work um, by social psychologists on where somebody who is, we can call past neutral, doesn't discount their past experiences, might end up doing a lot better than somebody who discounts their past. Suppose that you've, you're riding your bike and a driver is texting and being neglectful and hits you. And now you're in the hospital. You're going to sue this driver, not only for your medical bills, but also for your pain and suffering. You've got to set a figure on how much your pain and suffering is worth. Here's a question. Should you set the figure while you're still miserable in the hospital, or should you wait until you get home and you're on the mend to set the figure? Turns out there's good evidence from social psychology that you're going to ask for less money if you wait until you go home. If you want to make as much money as possible or, or agents who are likely to make as much money as possible are going to be the ones that set the figure while they're still in the hospital. If I was your attorney and I'm going to get a cut of whatever the pain and suffering damages are, I want you to set that figure while you're still in the hospital before you go home. This is an example of past discounting. And uh, so Eugene Caruso, Daniel Gilbert, and Timothy Wilson set out to measure this. And they basically just gave a bunch of people in Boston these two different thought experiments. You've either done some really boring data entry work for your boss last week, or you're scheduled to do some extra boring data entry work for your boss next week and ask people to set a price on how much this work is worth or how much they need to get paid. Turns out if you already did the work, you ask for a lot less money than if the work is scheduled for next week, even though by hypothesis, it's the same work. That's another example of past discounting. And that, like, once we take a step back, realize that we have this tendency, you should think, man, this is irrational. Like, the amount of money that you should be paid for pain and suffering for your accident should be the same, whether or not you're thinking about it while you're still in the hospital or you're thinking about it after you already get home. The amount that you're owed for some boring data entry work should be the same whether or not you still need to do it or it already happened. It's only like when we're in the moment that we tend to discount it, but when we get a little bit of distance, we think this discounting is is crazy. 
Something also that's really interesting about the Caruso, Wilson, and Gilbert study, they didn't just leave it there. They also uh, went and conducted the same boring data entry work experiment, asking people what other people should be paid for doing those jobs. So Tony, your coworker, did some boring data entry work last week. How much is he owed? Tony's going to do some boring data entry work next week. How much is he owed? It turns out when other people are involved, you think that they deserve exactly the same amount of compensation. It's only when you're thinking about boring data entry work that you're going to do, or when it's events that are happening to you in either your future or your past that you're tempted to discount them. When there are events that are happening to other people, the temptation to discount goes away, which Caruso, Gilbert, and Wilson say is really good evidence that discounting is caused by feelings like stressful emotions that come up with thinking about bad experiences that might happen in your future. And those same emotions aren't activated when you're thinking about bad experiences that happened in your past or bad experiences that are going to happen to other people. I don't know what to think about this now. You've officially confused me because uh, now I'm wondering, like, if we're in this scenario where I'm suing for damages, yeah, sh- like, is the me in the hospital uh, who's suffering right now and demanding a really high figure, the- is that the right figure? Or is the right figure the one uh, that the me one week later who's feeling better and feeling a little bit generous? And uh, is that the right figure? Like, who knows? I know. So, <laughs> yeah, no, the answer is temporal neutrality. So the theory of temporal neutrality says... Suppose you already got home from the hospital. You forgot to fill out the paperwork while you were there and still suffering. You should really vividly try to imagine what that pain felt like or try to like identify what the value of that pain is when you experienced it. And that should be what you base your valuing on now. You shouldn't care less about that pain because it's already over. You should try to put yourself in the moment and base your judgment on that. Likewise, if your boss says, hey, how much do I owe you for that boring data entry work you did last week? Don't just rattle off a figure based on how much you feel now. Put yourself vividly back in that situation of doing that boring data entry work. Think about how much you're owed once you're vividly in that situation and then put your price on it because that's what the rational agent should do. And then likewise, also, if uh, your boss says, how much should I pay Janine for the boring data entry work she did last week, you should try to put yourself in Janine's shoes, I guess. And now we're getting into questions of like morality and altruism. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, if you think that if Janine's somebody that you're concerned with in, in a kind of beyond altruistic way, like Janine's your friend or whatever, and you care about how things go for her, and from a standpoint of her self-interest, you take her self-interest as mattering to you, then yeah, you shouldn't discount Janine's past or future. You shouldn't discount your past or future. Well, this actually brings up a topic that I think is pretty interesting, which is, so sometimes like making a New Year's resolution, for example, is talked about as, well, I'm making a promise to my future self. And maybe you might also think of like retirement in a similar vein. You know, it's like I'm doing a favor for my future self or I'm setting things up to help my future self. So I wonder, like, how far do you think this analogy between current Matt and future Matt, and it's as, almost as though future Matt is a different person, how far can the analogy between my present self and my future self and me versus other people be pushed? So I'm an endurantist. I think that you don't persist through time by just having a bunch of different mats. So like one way of thinking about what it is to be a person stretched through time is you've got all these different temporal stages. We've got present mat, there's mat in five minutes, there's mat in 10 days, there's mat in 25 years, there's mat of 10 years ago. All of these stages are lined up at different slices of time. And what rational planning consists in is just you, the mat I'm talking to now, 
trying to make plans for Matt 10 minutes from now or Matt 10 years from now and thinking about him as like a person whose self-interest you're taking as your own, the same way you might take Janine's interest as your own. I think there are reasons to be suspicious of this way of talking about rational planning. One of my reasons is metaphysical. Like, I don't think that you are something that's stretched out in time as a bunch of stages. I think that you are wholly present at all the times that you're located. And that's something in other work I've tried to argue for. But also just from a rationality standpoint, there are things that thinking in stage talk like this, uh, issues that it obscures, and ways that it potentially makes you a worse planner. So what do I mean by that? Well, here's one worry. This comes out a little bit in some work by Christine Korsgaard and Susan Wolf, criticizing the stage theory of planning, particularly criticizing Derek Parfit, who made this way of talking really popular. If you're a temporal stage right now, that's trying to think about your reasons. Stages only really have like momentary pleasures. Like you think, you know, you're going to think of yourself as like a little ball of like pleasure. A temporal stage can't be a father or like a marathon runner or have any of these identity things that require existing for more than an instant. At least it doesn't seem like it can. You can come up with maybe complicated metaphysical theories for how a, a stage could be a father, but it'd be pretty hard because you'd say like, well, he didn't exist at any other moment besides this one, so he didn't exist long enough to like have kids. Wolf and Korsgaard, and this is a bit of a paraphrase, but they say, like, look, a lot of times our reasons for action are based on our identities. Why are you putting money into this college account? Well, because I'm a dad. Why are you getting up and running this morning? Well, because I'm a marathoner. Marathoners have to run every morning. Those kinds of arguments on the stage view don't seem to make any sense because you, the thing that's like making the trade-off right now, aren't a dad or a marathoner. You're just a stage. Uh, So how can we make sense of this way that people engage in planning if we're thinking that the things that are doing the planning are all of these stages spread out at time? I think that's one problem. Another problem that's talked about even less but I think is pretty acute is Even if you think there's an easy way to translate from, like, the multiple stage talk back into the, like, endurantist, like, you talk. So we say, the stage people want to say, present Matt is saving for future Matt. And the endurantist want to say, Matt's saving now, so he, Matt, will have money in the future. You might think, like, we can just translate between these two schemes pretty easily, and it's not a big deal. But actually, we know from philosophy of language and philosophy of mind that we're motivated in different ways depending on how we describe different situations. So if we describe something using a really strong indexical expression, we might be motivated to act in different ways than if we describe it in a more neutral descriptive way. So a really key example of this is John Perry's messy shopper example. You got the guy who's like wheeling his grocery cart around Walmart and he sees a trail of sugar and he thinks like, you know, that person who's leaving the trail of sugar really should be a little bit more conscientious. And then he just keeps walking around. And then eventually he realizes, I am the person leaving the trail of sugar. And he suddenly wants to change his behavior. He's suddenly very motivated to like seal up things in his bag or pay attention to things in his cart. The fact that a situation is described using strong indexical expressions we know can affect how we're motivated to act on the information. And I suspect a similar thing goes on when we're talking about planning for the distant future. So if I'm your retirement advisor and I say, like, how much do you think Matt of 2040 would like to have in his account? That's a kind of neutral, less like indexically strong way of describing the scenario. Then how much do you think you will want 
in 35 years. It might be that you're more motivated to take your reasons for saving seriously if I describe it in the uh, in the second way rather than in the stagey way. And, you know, these differences matter. So I think we should at the very least be cautious about how we describe these planning problems and not think it's like fine to switch between stage talk and switch between endurantist talk because we might then when we're giving people evidence for our different theories of rationality, we might uh, be turning off some of their ways of reacting to that evidence, if that makes sense. Okay, so does that mean that there are like actually important disanalogies between how I can have a duty to other people versus how I can have a duty to my f- uh, to whatever? <laughs> I don't know if it, yeah. maybe it's a different person, maybe it's me. You know, to my future self, whatever that means. So one big puzzle with this debate about time biases, you might say like, look, you're being really arbitrary when you care less about your distant future self or your past self, and rational agents shouldn't be arbitrary in these ways. A common next move in the argument, this is when you see Thomas Nagel make and Derek Parfit make in this debate, is they say like, okay, well, if arbitrariness is bad, there seems to be only arbitrary differences between experiences that happen to you and experiences that happen to other people. Does being prudentially rational, does prudence require extreme altruism? Too. If, you, if being prudential means not being arbitrary, then doesn't the whole concept of like being self-interested just collapse? And Parfit thinks it does, famously. I don't think it does. It's somewhat complicated to explain why. I think one of the most convincing arguments for thinking that there's a real distinction between prudential rationality and altruism is a point that David Brink makes, which he calls the, the compensation defense of prudence. But basically, the defense relies on... Uh, substantive claim about the metaphysics of personal identity. When you make a farsighted trade-off for your future self, you are going to get compensated for making that trade-off. You're going to get that extra money in your retirement account. You're going to get that second marshmallow. When you make a sacrifice, an altruistic sacrifice for somebody else, you never get compensated for that sacrifice. These differences of compensation, they are not arbitrary. They're the kinds of things that a rational agent is allowed to care about. They do presuppose that it's you that's going to make that withdrawal at the end, or it's you that's going to exist in five or ten minutes and not another person. But, you know, there's metaphysical theories of personal identity that are pretty damn good that can explain why it is you and can back up this kind of non-arbitrary theory of compensation. I think that's a pretty good answer. I also think, at the end of the day, philosophers need to take our intuitions as data in building our theories. And... Most of us do assume there's a pretty obvious distinction between prudential rationality and altruism. I think I'm doing something very different when I put money in my retirement account than when I give money to an elderly woman who lives in my neighborhood. I think unless we have a really overwhelmingly plausible story about why these distinctions aren't real, we should build a theory that respects them. And it's probably a good making feature of a theory if it has a distinction between altruism and prudence. So one, I don't know whether this is time bias or some other factor, but maybe we can think about that. But one factor that seems significant when you're planning for the future is that, you know, I don't know, the human mind seems to be a complicated, messy, always evolving, always changing thing. And just speaking autobiographically, I know that my own priorities have changed pretty dramatically many, many times over the years. And then that maybe gives me the feeling of uncertainty about what my future self is going to care about or what's going to be a priority for me later on or what I'm going to even need later on. And that maybe raises a kind of puzzle where you 
is there just are there severe built-in limitations on how well I can plan for the future when I don't even really know in depth what I'm going to want or need in the future because I might even you know as it were be a different person then. Yeah. So some philosophers, most recently and notably L.A. Paul, think that if you're going to undergo some like sudden radical change, that makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to use certain strategies to plan for the future. Paul seems to indicate in her transformative experience book that if you're not able to adequately imagine what it will feel like from the inside after a potential change, then you're not able to ration, apply like expected utility theory to decide whether or not you want that change. So here's an example. You're deciding whether or not you should go off to war. And you think like some people that go off to war, they end up finding it to be like a really difficult, but ultimately very um, satisfying experience. They develop courage, they develop really close camaraderie with their fellow soldiers. Other people who go off to war are just destroyed by it. Either way, after you go to war, like nothing would ever be the same for you. You think like, well, can you rationally decide whether or not to go to war? You might think like, sure, I can. I'll just sit down and like, I'll try to guess the likelihood of me ending up in the good scenario and likely to me ending up in the bad scenario and compare it to how happy I think my life would be if I stayed home. And then whichever option is going to result in me most likely doing better over the course of my future is the one I should do. And Paul says like, hold the phone. Like, how are you going to sit down and do that calculation if you have no idea what it's like to be a soldier on the front lines, if you can't even imagine what it's going to be like for you to be on the front lines? And you say, well, I'll just, like, you know, look at research, veterans research, and see, like, you know, what are the likelihoods of people with my similar demographics ending up in the good scenario or the bad scenario? And she says, no, that's not a good way to handle the problem because it's not answering the question that's most important, which is the what is it going to feel like from the inside for you to be in that scenario? We can call this maybe a projectability constraint on rational planning. If we took a constraint like this really seriously, we should note, it's going to make it very hard for us to think rationally about a lot of scenarios. So not just whether to go to war or, as Paul says in her book, whether or not to become a parent. She thinks that's one of these transformative experiences. It's also going to make it really hard for us to plan if we have to have a catastrophic medical intervention. So suppose your doctor says, like, you have spinal cancer. We can save your life, but only by performing a surgery which is going to leave you quadriplegic. Think, you have no idea what it would be like to live out the rest of your life as a paralyzed man. So you don't know how to rationally plan or whether or not to accept the surgery. Or if you're like in a Pascal's Wager style scenario, so you're trying to decide whether or not it's worth it to get up to go to church on Sundays because of a minuscule probability of there being a good heaven that you could get access to by doing so. You might think, you have no clue what it would be like to be in heaven, so you can't even start to think about the wager scenario. I think Paul raises an interesting question about whether or not we have to be able to project or imagine our futures in order to plan for them. But I think at the end of the day, it has to be the case that we should reject any such constraint. We have to be able to plan for our futures even if we know we're going to change significantly. Why is that? Well, well, some mundane reasons. One, like people rationally decide to become parents all the time. It's a bad like data point for her theory if she says that a kind of decision that lots of people everywhere are undertaking every day turns out to be irrational. We're owed a big theory of error if that's the case. But also, I mean, even just more mundane scenarios. I put some money in my retirement account this month. 
I am very confident I'm going to be an extremely different woman when I'm 65. I cannot even imagine what it will be like to be a woman like that. But I can guess that money is going to be a good thing for her. She's going to be glad that I have it and that she made, I made the decision. Got some evidence for that based on like polling retirees about how much they like money and what they like to spend money on. And that's good enough for me to, to engage in my planning right now. I also think like some philosophers have proposed cases where radical changes in your character are meant to be difficult for rational planning. So one famous one comes from Derek Parfit is the Russian nobleman problem. So Parfit says like, imagine you've got this young Russian socialist who really cares about distributing wealth to the poor in his country and like freeing the serfs from their labor. He knows in a few years, he's going to inherit a vast fortune from his father. And he also knows that as soon as he inherits the fortune, he's going to turn into like a greedy capitalist oligarch scumbag. So the question he raises is, is it now rationally permissible, Parfit raises this question, for the young socialist Russian to set things up so as soon as he inherits the money, even though he's going to want to keep it, he's going to be forced to give it away. So maybe he like sets up a contract or something where he's forced to redistribute it. You might think in those cases, you're using the fact that like a character change is enough for you to say like you just don't even care about your future preferences anymore because that guy is so different than you that his preferences deserve to be discounted. I think that's a bad way to interpret these cases. And in fact, even if you know your character is going to change a lot, if that's you in your future, you should still care about setting up things so that your preferences are satisfied. And here's one of the things I think that's going wrong with the Russian nobleman case. There's a lot of moral noise when you present this thought experiment. So a lot of us think like being a greedy capitalist oligarch is a really bad way of living. No matter what, everywhere, always, in every circumstance, somebody should give away that money as a moral imperative to redistribute that money. And it's this moral imperative that's overriding our intuitions about what's rational to do. And there's a way of testing that. And one way of testing that is to do a thought experiment that we might call the reverse Russian nobleman problem. So let's imagine you've got a youth right now who's really greedy capitalist oligarch, but he also knows in a few years, maybe when he gets out of college, he's going to soften up a little bit and become like more generous and more socialist and probably want to re- give away a lot of his money. Is it rational for him to set things up in such a way right now that he couldn't give away his money when he changes? Or do you think it would be rational for him to set things up in such a way so he's guaranteed to be frustrated when he tries to become more generous? I think a lot of us in that case have the intuition that, yeah, there might be something like it might be pretty irrational for him to set things up just because he doesn't really identify with that future self. Well, if that's your intuition about the case, then you should think the same thing about the regular Russian nobleman case and just think, like, in those cases, your your moral judgments are overriding or providing noise for your theory about what it's in your self-interest to do in these cases. Yeah, it's interesting. So I guess your take on the fact that maybe, you know, our priorities and our concerns change in life is something like, yeah, sure they do, but uh, that doesn't mean that from within the perspective of any given set of priorities, we can't still ask the question, What's the right outcome? It doesn't, in practice, affect our ability to plan for the future. We can use the same tactics we ordinarily use to make more mundane decisions. Yeah, and as a matter of course, like we are pretty bad at guessing about how happy we will be after radical changes. There's pretty good evidence from social psychology, especially working on disability, that shows we're pretty crappy at making judgments about whether or not our preferences will be satisfied after a big change. So. There's lots of evidence that people who experience permanent paralysis, 
think that before this uh, event happens, they're going to be really miserable and that their life will not have as much happiness anymore in the future going forward. But as a matter of course, after they enter the paralyzed condition, after a certain recovery period, they find that their levels of satisfaction with their lives and levels of well-being are pretty similar to what they were before they became disabled. That's good evidence to think like also you shouldn't really trust your personal judgments based on like imagination and projection about what a big experience is going to be like for you. But instead, you should look at the evidence of what people similar to you have have experienced. So what would be the like the practical everyday consequences of caring just as much about your past as about your future? So a couple of them we've already hit on in this podcast. One is when you decide to discount some distant future event and Make sure you're doing it because you assign low probability and not just because it's happening a long time from now. So make sure you're keeping separate your preferences about risk or your taste for risk from how far in the future some event's going to happen. I think once we do that, a lot of us should be putting a lot more money in our retirement accounts. If you're a healthy person with a healthy love of money and you perform this kind of thought experiment, you're going to think, man, I should be saving a lot more and I should get more information about how my money could grow. Another one, which we've already kind of touched on, is if you're trying to get compensated for something that's a painful experience or bad experience that's already happened in the past, try to vividly imagine or remember what it was like to be in that experience when you set the figure on it. And don't just rely offhand on how you currently uh, think about that experience because probably you are discounting it, but you shouldn't be. And that's not going to be a super weird way to live. It's just going to be something that causes you to pause and employ this kind of heuristic. As a matter of course, like our emotions are really sensitive to timing. So if you find out that your painful surgery is happening tomorrow rather than several months from now, you're going to be really anxious about it. You're going to have like really strong feelings about that knowledge or about the scheduling. That doesn't mean that you should care less about surgeries scheduled several months from now than you do about ones that are going to happen tomorrow. It just means that you've got to learn to manage your time-biased emotions. Likewise, Just because you feel relief about bad things that have already happened in your past, um, but you feel a lot of anxiety if the similar event were coming up in your future, that's just a fact about your emotional life and how you're wired, but it's not something that you should take as any evidence that it's rational to care less or value less past experiences. Part of being temporally neutral is also coming to grips with the fact that our emotions are sensitive to when things happen, but... Our emotions aren't always the good evidence for how we ought to value those same things. So those are a couple of quick points. And then finally, I guess going back to the conversation we just had about transformative experiences and radical changes, don't just think because you can't vividly imagine something happening in your future or what it's going to be like to be you after a certain change. You can't rationally plan around it or make a rational decision because you can. You should get evidence about what is likely to happen to people like you that are in that scenario. You should try to make a guess about whether or not your future self is going to be happy with the scenario that she finds herself in, even if you can't imagine why she'll be happy, like what it is that's going to be making her happy about that experience. If you've got some good evidence that, you know, you will be happy that you went ahead and got spinal surgery, you will be happy that you went ahead and became a parent, then that's some good reason to set things up in such a way that you're happy in the future, even if you're very different. And the mere fact that you're going to undergo a big change is not a reason to think that you can't rationally plan around it. Megan Sullivan, I enjoyed this interview very much, and uh, I'm going to do my darndest to enjoy it exactly the same as I would as if it were coming up again. 
Thank you. Good. Very good. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.